Hey everybody and welcome to episode 19 of the podcast who doesn't know how to do episode numbers. Yes, this really is episode 19. We had two episode 17s. So here we are. You're not going insane, Will. I love that nobody caught it. And the worst of all, we didn't even catch it until you literally just told me five seconds I, I, going I, on. I caught it, uh, I think, about a day after I put the last episode live and I was just like, <laughs> the horse had bolted. <laughs> I think it's kind of my fault as well. We used like in our docs, like I have to keep on updating what the, the the number is each time I duplicate the the notes, and I sometimes forget to change those numbers out. So I, I'll take full responsibility for this one. Well, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, it, I, I honestly don't think people care. I mean, <laughs> I, I I think uh, it's mainly chronological these days. I, Paul, I got into the habit because Paul and I do it with layovers, and I think we're about to do episode eighty, and then. We'll just, you know, we. Just, I'm amazed that he's managed to keep count. But here we are, <laughs> Sunday night, last day of September. Where the hell is the year going? I know it's crazy, and we're about we're as anyone who knows Northern California, we're about to hit summer, which is great. <laughs> we're getting our Indian summer right now. Uh, we're not. Well, actually, you know what? We're having sunshine, and that's all I care about. I don't really care what the temperature is, as long as it's sunny. And not that I've been in the country much at all this last month, which I'll talk about a bit later, but. Yeah, it, the sun is shining. I'm happy. I even let my kids have a little bonfire yesterday, which got out of control qu- quickly, as uh, as children oh. and fire tend to do pretty much always. I can just imagine uh, one of your, your your sons just doing the Beavis thing. Fire, fire. Yeah, you know what? That's absolutely spot on. That's exactly what happened. I wonder if this will burn. I want did Dad do worms burn? <laughs> oh, I don't. Yeah. What's that smell? Uh, but here we are. We have a great episode. We've got a great guest lined up. I'm not going to tell you who it is just yet because we'll uh, we'll get into the 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 meat of this episode. No pun intended. Uh, a, a little bit later, but uh, it's uh, it's Sunday night for me. Sunday morning ish for you. Well, no, technically afternoon. What are you drinking on this fine Sunday? So I'm a little. I, I'm hurting a little bit. Also, I, I went back at. Uh, to back up a little bit, um, whenever I'm underground on the way to work, um, going under the, the bay, I sometimes realize that I've run out of downloaded content on my phone and, and or you know, new podcasts and I can't stream down there. So occasionally I have the old ver- old episodes of Mastication Nation. And so I listen to a couple. One of us always has a cold, <laughs> come to the conclusion. Yeah. But um, not today. Neither of us are sniffing, but I am pretty bro pretty pretty hungover well well, okay well before before you tell me what you're drinking now what did you drink yesterday to put you in this state a a few things but i ended up (laughs) finishing the night with uh, a couple glasses of 10-year uh eagle rare bourbon um Mm. which is very nice and very affordable uh only about 25 26 dollars a bottle and it's made by the guys who do, do buffalo trace but uh yeah, I, I think that pretty much was not comfortable uh, this morning. I was, I was hurting you a little bit, but I'm actually chasing it a little bit with um, some Sapporo, just your typical res- the, the uh, what is it, the reserve beer, the orange can, the gold can one. Nice. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So two things to comment on that. First of all, I can tell you as science, as fact, that hair of the dog is nonsense. Doesn't work. You know where it comes from? Have we ever talked about this? The the phraseology. Yes, I have no idea. Uh, they thought that's a <clears throat> that's a word. I know it just sounds weird. 
uh, I'm pretty sure it was the Romans, but someone will correct me if it's the Greeks. Uh, when you got bitten by a dog that had rabies. You were supposed to go get that dog, um, clip off some of its hair, put it into a drink and drink it because they thought that the anti- – well, I mean, the the scientific logic was that the antibodies in the animal's fur would help you stave off rabies. <laughs> God. Yeah, it doesn't work. No. It doesn't work uh, in Roman and or Greek times, and it doesn't work now. It's a it's a lousy hangover cure, which actually is pretty amazing that it's lasted however many thousands of years. And it's neat that you're drinking Sapporo. I'm going to the place of Sapporo in uh, in a few weeks to check it out. I, I feel like I can't go there and not go to the brewery. So I, I will go to the brewery. Even if they don't do tours, I'll just let myself in. The place of Sapporo, otherwise known as Japan. as uh, Well, otherwise known as Sapporo. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but <laughs> uh, Sapporo in in Hokkaido, so I am I'm looking forward to that uh, immensely. Um, I'm not telling you why I'm going there, but it's uh, it's what well, basically to drink Japanese beer and eat Japanese food. But they, uh, yeah, no, it's good. I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to that. I'm drinking a uh, reasonably okay Italian red Sunday night. So why not? Good way to end. Yeah, I almost I almost drank some white wine today, like instead of beer, and just really throw everyone off. And be like, why is Will drinking wine? But I thought I'd let you have your thing. And yeah, you you kind of right. missed the window for that, haven't you? If you, the only time you could have got away with that is if you were drinking a rosé or a white on a hot California summer. But you've missed that without. Yeah, now I just like, like a drunk lush. if I'm drinking it in the morning. One final thing on Sapporo, Sapporo. Uh, what is your favorite beer in the world? Like it's always been your Sleeman Sunny Brown. So Sleeman Sleeman is owned by Sapporo. Well, doesn't Sapporo own a lot of people? Uh, they own five breweries. Uh, they own they own Sleeman. They own a brewery in Wisconsin, weirdly, um, and then well, no, so seven, and then five in Japan. Uh, f- for those who who feel like Sleeman's really, I think that. Um, beer among uh, as much as any other food or, or beverage um, can it's not the best beer in the world but it's, it reminds me of happy times and therefore for good times make it Sleeman's times well do you know that they also own Anchor Brewing here they own Anchor Steam yep wow did not know that wow my beer knowledge is terrible um, it's not only brewed in Sapporo, which is, I mean, that, that's not exactly surprising. But yeah, so they own, um, they own Ankerstein. They bought it last year. Hmm. Huh. So there you go. It's Japanese. I don't, li- I don't like Ankerstein. I mean, I don't mind that logo, but it just doesn't really do anything for me. Uh, before we get on to food, uh, what we, I, I do want to give a shout out to somebody that took me and Paul on a Twitter education a few weeks ago on the back of a reasonably innocuous tweet that came out. And I can't remember if it, or a conversation we had, if it was you and me or, or, or me and Paul, but Chris Ratcliffe is at Chris Ratcliffe on Twitter happened to mention uh, saying, have you guys been given the specifics on Hibiki's partial demise? I, th- I can't remember if it was on Leover's mastication nation. We talked about Hibiki running out of Hibiki of the good stuff, essentially. Uh, of of this wonderful wonderful whiskey and he he on twitter gave us this incredible basically started with hibiki and then went down and was sort of the beginner's guide for me anyway to to japanese whiskey i'm gonna try and figure out how one encapsulates a thread to make sure that all of the conversation is in there on twitter and 
and and posted on the Mastication Nation one because it was so interesting about how one finds the best blends and who owns what and who produces it and where to find it and this trivia about this impossible to find a, a Japanese whiskey, which is a Hibiki or Suntory, people going and buying all the little tiny bottles from 7-Eleven, buying the big bottle on eBay, and then pouring all the little bottles into the big bottles. So it looks <laughs> so like the blend of a real... blend. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Chris, amazing knowledge. Really, really cool of you to do that, and uh, and I appreciate it. Um, and and I don't. I think you're a new listener, so welcome. I, I hope. Uh, you can continue to drop those knowledge bombs on us because that was a real education and I am impressed. Yeah, I saw, I saw that and it was like 17 like tweets later. I'm like, it was. Oh, wow, he's got a lot of information. He does. And Paul and I were just sat there wrapped as, as we sort of went back and forth. And I asked my, you know, very pedestrian questions about, about Japanese whiskey and, and things like that, where to find it. And you know, all these little places in Japan where, where one goes to find it. He also suggested for W that we do an inebriation nation, which should be a spinoff podcast, no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> Why isn't it? That should be, uh, you and Keith doing that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and focus on, on whiskey and the guys from whiskey cast, which is a great, uh, great site. So, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get yeah, that. That's worth, that's worth doing. Will's Sorry, I have, my door, I have my door open and my cat just jumped on um, a very precarious pile of, of things. And she almost knocked this over, which you probably can't see, which is a picture of my dog uh, riding a turtle with a uh, pipe in his mouth. I hasten to add as an illustration, not a illustration, photograph. Illustration, thank you, yes. Will's, and Will's I did not want him to, well, I had to break that. Sorry. So, so yeah, I... I I'm, I like this idea, W. I also love the idea of inebriation nation. I think that's, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, another absolutely. another spinoff podcast in the attache portfolio. Um, but actually, while we're talking about beer, uh, Pimp My Dibber, Ben, uh, said that we should explore Chester, the city of Chester up in, uh, in was it Northern England? I think it's Northern. It's Midlands. Ben, uh, forgive me for if we've just made a... Just caught a di- yeah, social faux pas diplomatic incident. Uh, camera was founded there, and he, we we talked about camera uh, last episode about some of the beer that you you found in in the UK, and were surprised that you couldn't find those real ales anymore. But they are um, uh, based in Chester, and now there's this new new one called Seabass Beer Without Fear. I don't know what it means. I don't know what it stands for. I think we should have them on to tell us about it or at least tweet at us, guys, and explain a little bit more without what sea bass is and beer without fear. So it seems to me Chester's got a very good beer scene. Is it wrong that all I think about when I hear Chester is the terrible British soap opera Hollyoaks? Because I know that that took place in Chester. Did it? Yeah. Chester's a beautiful town. It's an ancient Roman town. I think it's the second oldest town in the UK. After, oh, you're going to get lit up if that's wrong. Well, Colchester is the oldest. I know that Worcester was, for one point, one of the most important towns in England. I know Chester is is was was very important and and is because Ben lives there. It's very beautiful. They clearly have um, strong feelings about wine. So that's uh, that's wine good. <laughs> that's good. Um, anyway, um, one more thing on on the last episode, going back to tablet, which was a revelation for me and Will which was this Scottish delicacy, fudge-like, UK fudge, not American fudge. And we asked about whether the ice cream was 
sort of regular plain ice cream with tablets smushed into it or if it was tablet flavored. And he said, generally, it's it's in-house ice cream made by the Varani Forum Cafe and it's tablet flavored, but has small nuggets of tablet, although he wrote table, which sounds much less appealing <laughs> <laughs> throughout it. A nice um, oak table. <laughs> yeah, no, nice, yeah, oaky Okay, finish. He said that we're right. Tablet is in every tour shop, but the best stuff comes from the independent sweet shops. Or <laughs> I love this at a church sale where an old lady has made it. There you are. Yeah. What about a? Uh, that's fascinating. So the next time I'm in rural Scotland, as you are to do, as I, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to Glasgow tomorrow. So uh, oh, okay. I will, I will bring back some tablet and I will eat it for science. Okay, fine. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> live on this podcast like i did with that weird hungarian liquor stuff liquor, yeah yeah well this is a uh this is a food podcast as much as it is a drink podcast so let's get on to what was the best thing you've eaten since you we've re- last recorded i know you've been traveling but i wouldn't be surprised if something you had was local as well one second the the tweet that follows ross's thing about tablet what what is neil what is he referring to uh oh sorry okay um so i posted um why we talked about last episode how my wife uh imported a whole thing of um of scampi chips from england and how i my favorite pub snack was hog lumps uh you know uh yeah uh pork scratchings and so someone said you know uh, I think it was Ross uh, Manson was commenting on the like you know why pork scratchings are great and Neil Moody I think at at Neil Moody at Neil Moody said uh, mate they are awful so are packets of pork scratchings they smell like dogs farts uh, maybe a good episode of the Mastication Nation would be tasty food that stinks that's funny. so it was in reference to the fact that like uh, Neil does not like scampi chips uh, and also hates pork scratching so neil you and i are diametrically opposed on this so uh maybe we will do an episode there's so much stuff that tastes better than it smells um, obviously you got your durians and your cheeses but uh you know i don't sure if uh dogs farts are <laughs> what was it uh uh smelling notes or flavor notes that flavor you get note. with yeah, yeah. yeah with your wine um there's a one final thread on that scampi thing, isn't there? About you got to the end of it, and there's something else. This manufacturer that makes these scampi th- things that you found or imported, probably illegally, uh, <laughs> make something called cheese moments. Cheese moments, yes. Um, and basically, as you, we got one of those pub pull away things. So you each time you you take it down a packet of scampi chips, um, you know, it exposes the cardboard behind it and there's advertising behind there. And there was a thing of cheese moments, uh, basically saying, buy these next. Uh, our good friend Greg Barnes had uh, alluded to the fact that he loved cheese moments. Uh, and just a little late shout out. Happy birthday, Greg. And as I mentioned Greg on Barnes. Twitter, as I mentioned on Twitter, I hope it's uh, filled with cheese moments. Cheesy moments, which is also his Tinder bio, apparently. <laughs> so on that note, yes, I have I have traveled a lot in the last uh, all of this month. Frankly, I've been in Vancouver, British Columbia, in the beautiful, beautiful country of Canada. Uh, I've been to Chicago, IL, and I've been to Kristiansand, Norway, which is a beautiful little out not outpost. That makes it sound 
Diminutive. Barren. No, it's not. It's lovely. And I ate some wonderful things there in Chicago on the recommendation of Sir Greg Bonyes. I went to Green Street Meats, which is a barbecue joint in, on Green Street, funnily enough. And they do all of their own stuff in-house there. And I think it's quite new, but it was phenomenal. Absolutely really top joint texas style barbecue oh i was coming to ask yeah in a really really great the, the smoker's right there and it's in a it's in a really uh great environment that the 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 restaurant itself is beautiful that was some of the best best brisket i've ever had in my life um that was great but the best thing i had was in vancouver and we went to a place called torfuku which is run by clement chan who is a uh a chef who was born and raised in in Vancouver, but obviously is of uh, is of Asian heritage. He uh, went on um, uh, Top Chef Canada and Eat Street and did really well. He was National Chef of the Year. He started with this food truck called Le Tigre, and it went really really well. And now has done this this sort of I hate the word fusion, but he that's kind of what it is. He basically says, look, there's forty one forty three percent of Vancouver's population is either Asian or of Asian descent. There are a ton of straight Southeast Asian restaurants. You can get some of the best dim sum in the world. You can get the best any regional Chinese, Taiwanese, uh, Hong Kong, China, you know, Cantonese dim sum, all that stuff. It's really hard to compete in there. So he's like, what if I took what's great about the West Coast of Canada and the ingredients and the look and feel and then made it with Asian flavors? And had a little bit of fun with it. And that's exactly what he's done. And it's sort of small plate style in just on the edge of Chinatown. And some of the food, all of the food that we tried was was so good. And things on the menu were like things like, I love the names, 24 karat gold, um, extra virgin olive oil, confit, miso, baby potatoes, sauteed mushrooms, baby spinach, toasted hailnut with an in-house dressing. Dropping Mad Beets, which is roasted golden beets, muzukan pickled red beets, maitake and shiitake mushrooms, candied walnuts, garlic kale with torched burrata. This one was my favorite. The unicorn. Nero spaghetti, roasted corn, garlic buttered spot prawns, snow crab, herb crumble, and an uni bisque. That's awesome. It was so good. I think this one would probably be your favorite, though. Uh, oh, actually, maybe one of these two. Duck leg ragu, polenta tempura fries, shaved parm, star anise gastrique, uh, and local greens and a yuzu vinaigrette. And it's called poutine, question mark, question mark, question mark. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was. Oh, yeah. So this final one, because it was it was so good. Chicken liver pate, mustard seeds, yuzu pickled Tokyo turnips, apricot puree, and grilled furikake sourdough. Wow. It was and it sounds faffy, but it wasn't. It looked like something you'd get in a California re- restaurant, but it tasted Asian. Yeah, obviously, I mean everything that you mentioned there, except for the duck. I mean, even the duck had um, something from the sea in there, and it's you know that whole area is such a, uh, a fantastic um, you know access to to seafood and and uh, what's the word I'm looking for shellfish that you can't not take advantage of it. Yeah, and of course you're right on this on the Pacific there, so you've got access to all of that. It was so inventive, it was so creative. You th- there's I mean a massive Japanese influence or Japanese flavors there, which you got immediately. But so many, ju- I was so impressed with it. It wasn't 
it wasn't crazy expensive either. It was what I would expect to pay for food of this quality. So impressive. So good. That easily the best thing I've eaten in the last, since I got back from California. Well, I think you and I have a fairly similar best thing we've eaten, um, rather than being something we, we made or something we, um, you know, stumbled upon like uh, on a street corner. Uh, the best thing I ate was at a restaurant in San Francisco, San Francisco called Octavia. And so 10 days ago, it was my wife and I's five year wedding anniversary. Mazel tov. Thank you. Uh, decided to go somewhere very nice. And we hadn't heard of this, and a couple of people suggested this place. It is a Michelin style restaurant. Um, the chef is Melissa Pererlo. Uh, hope I'm pronouncing her last name right. <clears throat> and Octavia is a street in San Francisco, and it's named after, after that. Really nice restaurant, like decor, you know, ambiance, not too faffy, open kitchen. Um, and we ended up doing the, so, well, I'll put it to you. When you go to a Michelin star, uh, restaurant and you want to do the uh, the chef's tasting, how much do you think you're going to be costing? Oh, how at least $200 a person. $75 a person. Wow. Yeah. And it was like, they say it comes in four waves and it's three courses each. By the end of it, I could not, the plates were not tiny either. Um, but they, you know, the... It was a real gamut. It runs from like seafood to meat to vegetable uh, vegetable stuff, pasta. Uh, there was a fantastic halibut crudo. Um, but for me, the thing that I loved the absolute most was one of the first things they brought out, which is their deviled egg, um, which is a soft-boiled egg, Fresno chili res- relish, marasha pepper, and spices. And it's just like very simple, beautiful, so well done, such a great way to open the palate. And it came with deep fried tzatziki, mm. which I thought was amazing. How do you do that? What, what does they it- put, I think they put the, t- 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 they, they f- like not froze, but cooled the tzatziki down to a ball and then rolled it in dough and then fried it. Mm. And so it's it, all gooey. Time, it- exactly. By the time you bite into it, it's, it's so uh, a mozzarella ball. Kind of, but it's like with tat- with tzatziki, so there's no cheese in there, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, they had a, a wagyu tartare with shinko pears, hazelnuts, uh, aioli, capers, and pickled shallots. Um, you know, it was just they're famous for their bread as well. To the point where on the menu, it's like you can get their house baked levain, but you can also take home a whole loaf for eight dollars. So that, that's how you know everyone just goes there and is like, hey, can I just get some of your bread? Uh, and they sell it right out the front door, and it was phenomenal i'll 100 go back there especially at the rate uh of what it cost i mean we spent a little much on the wine but uh the food for 75 bucks a person was stellar wow wow what a discovery yeah absolutely it's very easy to get uh, get to we were staying we treated ourselves midweek and stayed at the uh the fairmont hotel oh yeah which- uh, is up on the hill uh, behind my office. And so yeah, it was great. The next, the next day I could just walk down to my office and it took me about four minutes. I'm like, I should live at the Fairmont. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not rich enough. Don't worry. <laughs> wow. That sounds like I'm going to, well, that's another place to add when I'm next in town, whenever that's going to be. I'm very jealous. 75 bucks for a Michelin star tasting menu that in San Francisco. As well. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know if they always do it, um, but it was, a steal of a century. Yeah, sounds like it. Holy cow. Well, it sounds like a lot of people that listen have also had some great food in the uh, in the intervening weeks since our last episode went live. A lot of you actually got in touch, and I appreciate that. Uh, start, Craig, Craig McCormick. Man, you got it made. 
dude. He said that the best thing that he's eaten was homemade xiaolongbao dumplings made by his wife. Yeah, and they took a photo of them. They look fantastic. <laughs> they look amazing. And she, yeah. he does say, to his credit, best wife ever. Yeah, <laughs> you know what, dude? Homemade uh, xiaolongbao, that's, uh, that's a pretty good one. I, although... There was another one that, that caught my eye that you immediately replied to that uh, Joel Candia sent us. Yeah, so Joel, um, he was very upset how long it had taken us to get between uh, to recording episodes. So sorry about that, but we are back. Um, they said, the best thing I ate over the summer, sorry, the Australian winter, because he's in Perth, <laughs> fair, fair. was an amazing array of saute at a roadside stall in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, chicken, mutton, and rabbit. Oh, Have you wow. ever had rabbit saute? Never, ha- I've had grilled rabbit, but I've never had rabbit saute. And he put a picture up, and it looks exquisite. Yeah, and he said that he liked them all, um, but the peanut sauce was the uh, the star of the oh, show. God. I've tried for years to make decent peanut sauce to go with saute or anything like that. I just can't get the flavors and spices right. To quote Principal Skinner, um, <laughs> but it's yeah, it's. Uh, I've set myself. I'll, I'll take a stab at it because I've actually set myself this goal over the over the autumn months as we get into the colder months, and I, I tend to do more inside cooking. Uh, I set myself a goal to um, always have at least half a pound of caramelized onions in the fridge because uh, they're so easy to have and make and just uh, add to things. I'm also going to make my own piri piri spice uh, mix. Uh, so, you know, as anyone who lives in England or S- South Africa knows, piri piri sauce. So I'm gonna ma- I'm gonna make my own of that. Uh, and so I'll keep everyone updated on how that goes. But then I might take a stab at your peanut sauce and see if I can get a good one down. Yeah, it's. Uh, I need to. I need to figure. Once you do it, once you've done all the work and the research and put all the energy, <laughs> time do it in a, in a clear and concise manner. Uh, John John Young, uh, who has uh, uh, was very sweet and said uh, one positive note returning from holidays that there's new episodes of Layovers and Mastication Nation. Thank you, John. It's very kind. Sorry again that it took so long. He he went to Copenhagen uh, and went to some of the places that uh, we talked about in our episode of Attaché. Uh, Copenhagen street food and brood in which is the schmore brood stuff that I had uh, with Asimus, who was a guest on this this show a few few months ago, and a beer from from Mikkeler, which is is the way to do it. And also, and I'm pissed off that I didn't get a chance to try this when we were there. The ramen f- f- uh, from ramen to biru, which I think is a joint venture between Mikkeler and. Um, this Japanese chef, the ramen is supposed to be outstanding, but we just ran out of time to try it. So next time I'm there. Yeah, it's not too far of a flight for you to get No, it's there. not. I always forget how close. It feels like, again, like I said in the, episode, the attache episode, it feels like some northern European outpost, but it's an hour and a half flight from here. It's no distance. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, it's almost on the same latitude, isn't it? Uh, longitude, that's not that far. It's, it's just north of Hamburg. So yeah, pretty, pretty much. Uh, but much, 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 much colder. But there we are. So... Uh, oh, and one final one to answer a question. Taylor Moore uh, sent us a picture of some uh, uh, Din Tai Fung Xiaolong Bao dumplings. And he said, is this the guys you, place you guys were talking about in the dim sum episode way back in the D, obviously, episode? Uh, yes, although not that one. He's at the Din Tai Fung in Santa Anita, West the Westfield Santa Anita Mall. Which which I think is the first one that was opened in the U.S. Mm, that I sounds think about I right. I could be wrong. Uh, certainly it was in Southern California. Yes, that's the place, Taylor. And I would be very interested to know what you thought of it. And if you've had Dim Tai Fung anywhere else in the world, I will give you all a pro tip. I can't remember if we mentioned this. Don't go to Dim Tai Fung in Dubai. 
Why? Ask, ask me why. Good, good. Well done. Uh, well, you can't have pork in Dubai. So basically, it's just shrimp everything? No. It's lamb, which doesn't always work. With, yeah, that would be a bit odd. Yeah, it wasn't good. My kids loved Din Tai Fung, and they even they were like, this makes my mouth sad. Um, <laughs> so there's so much other great food in in Dubai that you don't really need to. But anyway, kind of kind of a pro tip. If you're going to try Din Tai Fung, I suggest you do it not in Dubai. But I think we, I feel like we should move on to the, the topic du jour, which is P for and again, a million people try to guess this. It's pizza. It's it's pizza because pizza. it's gonna be pizza. What else? Like prunes? No, no, not gonna happen. Parmesan. There's so many. I mean, this is the one thing where I'm not worried when we go back around the horn that we're gonna go. Oh shit! What should we do for P? Not worried about it. It's gonna be. We got loads to do, but yeah, when we get to when we, if we double up on X, we're gonna be in trouble. We might have to do like oh, the. Geez. The culinary uh, stylings of uh, gum. exhibit or something yeah. like that. The rap stylings of uh, DMX, whatever it might be. There's not going to be many opportunities there, <laughs> but we'll figure it out. I think we have like a year and a half to figure that out. <laughs> uh, we've got we've got Scott Scott Weiner from uh, Scott's Pizza Tours joining us a little bit later. Uh, he's a legend. He was on our New York episode of Attaché. He knows more about pizza than any other person uh, in the world, let alone that I've met. And, and he's just a super nice guy as well. So he'll be joining us later to talk about what makes good pizza and how to find it and what to look for and some of the neat projects and world records that he holds. So yes, I know. So we'll, uh, we'll dive into that in a minute, but pizza feels really reasonably inoffensive, doesn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. I, I, and it's something I, I that everyone thinks has been around forever. How long has it been around for though? Oh, the, first of all, the way that you said pizza just then just made me think of South Park. Pizza, pizza French fries. fries. Yeah. <laughs> pizza, French fries. Um, so let's put it this way. Flatbread, a variety of flatbread has been around forever. But if we're talking about our current pizza and what would be recognizable to us, it's only – it's actually a much more modern thing. Um, you know, we've had – Flatbread for thousands of years. In 6th century BC, the soldiers in the army of the Persian king uh, Darius I baked flatbreads with cheese and dates on the on top of their battle shields, which is just the ultimate unit uh, uh, multitasker, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, uh, but you know that would look kind of similar. But the fact that we would we have pizza places here in the modern world and fl- and we also see flatbread and none of the twain shall meet um shows that we would say that we would look at that and be like oh it's flatbread even though it has cheese on it it's, it's a flatbread uh we wouldn't recognize modern pizza until about 300 years ago basically it's when tom- tomatoes were added to the caccia in naples around the 18th century and you got to think about it this way tomatoes although are so associated with southern european cooking they're not a native species they came over came over with the colombian exchange so it's not like they could have done anything prior no, that's to, interesting but the but there's so much stuff that's associated with um with especially italian cooking that only came from the mass migration of peoples and back and forth and you know us sending syphilis and smallpox and them sending back <laughs> actual useful things um like tobacco <laughs> tobacco tomatoes eggplants potatoes all the things that like i associate with italians that they you know they had to wait for that to come across um but there's an off recounted story that everyone seems to know which is 
the on the eleventh of June, eighteen eighty nine, to honor the Queen of Italy, uh, the Queen's consort of Italy. Sorry, uh, Margarita of Savoy, the ne- Neapolitan pizza maker, Raffaele Esposito. I think I got that right. Created the pizza margarita, a pizza garnished with tomatoes, mozzarella, and basil to obviously represent the Italian flag, which is where we get margarita pizza. It's named after a woman. It's like saying Mary's pizza. It's a nice story. I don't know. I don't think anyone really contests it. I mean, maybe somebody made that pizza um, prior to that, but like the Italian government and, and the historians basically say this is when someone got the royal seal of approval, sure. the the trademark on it, whatever you want to call it. And so it's quite easy. Pizza is such a cool thing because I think it's it's universally appreciated and consumed in pretty much every corner of the globe. It is weirdly contentious, and we'll get into reasons uh, for that a bit later, which I think are all nonsense. But I, 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 it's it's one of those things where it's so beloved and so popular and so universal, but also has all of these regional variations. And because you can put stuff on top of it, again, we'll, we'll get onto that later because that's also contentious. You have lots of you know thousands, or I think what's a, what's a round tables or not round table? Dominoes say there's like. Maybe your billion combinations of toppings that you can do or something ridiculous through their website. Uh, yeah, yeah, some, something something insane like that. But but it is it's rather wonderful that it came from something as simple as the base. Obviously, tomatoes, mozzarella has to be buffalo mozzarella if it's from Naples, uh, and and basil. It's it's so simple. It's so pure. And arguably, that's pizza. In its that's pizza. Period. Yeah. I mean, the Italians and Neapolitans and, and people from Naples are, to this day, still incredibly, uh, not patriotic, but like um, conservative of what they call pizza. Because they wouldn't call what we do in the U.S. pizza. They'd be like, that's an abomination unto the Lord. Um, but they have like a couple of the classics, which we talked about, the, the margarita, the marinara style, where they use a marinara sauce. Uh, and then my favorite one, the Neapolitan style, which is a very specific style. Uh, around the world, but within Naples itself, they specified rules that are you have to use San uh, Marzino tomatoes grown on the slopes of Mount Vesuvius and uh, drizzling the olive oil and adding tomato topping in a clockwise direction. That's how specific you have to be. Yeah, and that's sort of there's a there's a council uh, uh, that makes sure that these rules are adhered to, not just for any sort of competition, but also. To say that you are, you know, serving Neapolitan pizza, David Chang, who in his episode of Ugly Delicious on pizza, spent a lot of time talking about this and interviewing the people and, and challenging them because the whole th- the whole thread through that series was about authenticity. And he brought a, one of his friends over who's who's a um, from Italy who's a pizza maker, and they got some pizza in new york and he ate it like he was very skeptical at first and he's like yeah but this isn't pizza and I'm like well hold on a second you know it's been 300 years the definition has changed it's ebbed and flowed it's been arguably improved upon and by the end of it i think he was a convert but within italy yes neapolitan is 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 a very explicit and crystal clear definition of of, of what that pizza variety is but I'm not sure. I mean, first of all, before we get into the to the to the varieties and all that stuff, wh- why the hell is it called pizza? 
This is one of the ones I found incredibly murky. There was not a clear answer for this. I've heard that uh, one of the reasons it's called pizza is from a, a an old Italian word, uh, pizzicari, or I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. P-I-Z-Z-I-C-A-R-E. Pizzicari. Uh, and it becomes, it comes from the word to pluck. And I guess it was from the, the motion of plucking them out of the oven with a peel. But I've also seen far more, um, convincing arguments that it's just the bastardization of pita, which is another flatbread from a region not too far away. Uh, and another one was, uh, pinza, which is where we get the word to pince, which comes from a Latin word to clamp, to pound, to stamp. And All I of guess which you that do comes with. Exactly, all of which we do with dough and pizza, you know, so it's open to interpretation. I don't think that there really needs to be an argument on where it comes from because it wasn't like our our um nachos or something or burgers or something like that where it you know it is something that came to being in a very specific way as opposed to people had been putting things on on unleavened flatbread or in a Pizza, it is, it's leavened because they use yeast. But they've been putting things on flat bread for millennia. And so this odd variation, it's so, it's going to be so vague that you're not going to get, um, you know, culinary etymologists coming after you with the rolling pin. This is an interesting point. It's, it's, you know, we have its birth story to an extent, but, but, but not really. And again, it's gone, it's gone to the far corners of the world. It's probably one of the best traveled foods in history in terms of how many cultures it's infiltrated and become adored by that. It, I'm, I'm happy that, that the, the, the people in, in Naples are preserving a pure branch or maybe the mother branch of, of this cuisine but I'm very also very happy that it has ebbed and flowed and one can still get Neapolitan pizza pretty close to this you know religious version if you will the original style in many of the biggest biggest cities in the world but I you know we we've touched on this but specifically you know you talked about the crust having being being leavened and having yeast in it what is pizza dough made from or should be. I see this is a thing, isn't it? <laughs> well, no, it's not a thing. It's not an argument. People need to shut up. <laughs> uh, it, it's basically, and I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm. It, it's so important to get this right. As much as we talked about it in the burger, where you've got to get the patty right before anything else. With pizza, you've got to get the dough right, and you got to get the I crust right before you do anything else. Toppings hide poor crust, and so I'm just going to say this out the top. Gluten-free pizza is not pizza. It doesn't work. You have to have a a, a bread dough. A, uh, you know, you need, you need flour that has a high level of protein in it to create gluten, which creates the bubbles that makes pizza dough what it is: chewy yet crisp, yet you know malleable. It's like a good baguette. It's got to have that. So I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you on that. I'm gonna challenge you on that. Not with anecdote, but with experience. And I'll tell you why. My son has a gluten intolerance, so we have are well-versed in the quality and availability of not just the raw ingredients and materials, but also of the finished product. Generally, we can find pasta that is passable, if not pretty freaking good now. There is a chain, is makes it sound unfair. There's a place in London that you may have heard of called uh, Franco Manca, which I always call Manky Franco's, because I never liked it at first, but it really grew on me. They have a gluten-free sourdough, because they're a sourdough crust 
joint, uh, which we can talk about as well. Uh, and it's stellar. You wouldn't know, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. So what, a, what are they using? I have no idea. Probably rice flour. I think they'd be mental to, to, to tell you that, but I, they, it's, it is gluten-free. It's very, very good. Look, look, you can make a, a passable pizza, but the thing that like, I'm, I get upset when I see people eating pizza and like they're leaving, leaving the crust. It either means that they don't know what they're missing or the, or the crust wasn't very good. Basically, I looked up passable gluten-free pizza recipes and I even went to the, Bible on all things food, science-related, serious eats. And they said that they found one that worked and they used rice flour. And what they had to do was they had to, you know, they use yeast, they, they, they let it rise, they punched it down, but then they had to blind bake the, 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 the dough before adding toppings. And it's like, okay, well, you're messing with the overall steps a little bit, but that's not the end of the world. But they wrote down in what the, in the section that why it didn't work is it didn't doesn't have any of the tenderness and true chew that we like in pizza crust but hey it doesn't have gluten in it either so it can work you're basically when you're when you're getting rid of the gluten the biggest thing you're trying to to stave off is the dough being dry crumbly not going to hold together so if there are ways for that to happen but you're just not going to get i mean you can maybe tell me i'm wrong but like that really crisp on the outside doughy chewy on the inside uh pizza dough that like most people are looking for yeah i I, my so the stuff that we get uh usually chilled or frozen for my son is fine it's not going to set your world on fire but show me a a store-bought frozen pizza that is and I'll just call you a liar, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's passable. It's just as good as any of the other ones when we, and then store that you get in the store in the chiller section. The real challenge, as you say, is the, is the crust that you get in, in the store and the pizza restaurants. And this was the first one where I was like, Oh my God, this is actually pretty good. Cause you're right. Invariably they're like cardboard and they're, and they're horrendous, but it, it, it can be done. So, and the, and the and the sourdough thing is an interesting twist. I think that adds a, a sort of uh, a tanginess to the dough, which is which is good uh, as well, and it has a, a very different flavor profile from the normal high protein high wheat that you usually use. So what you're looking for with that yeast, right, is the bubbles to create, so that you get all of that that lovely rising. Yeah, the gluten creates a matrix of um, proteins that allows the yeast, which is burping um, CO2 to capture. And, and, you know, basically if you didn't have a good gluten structure uh, that CO2 would just evaporate out into the, into the wider world and you wouldn't capture this, these bubbles, which you want to create the, the, the texture of the pizza. Yeah. And I, I think absolutely that, that flakiness, that crustiness, um, the, the bubbliness in the dough, which, when, if you build the dough properly, which is you put it into your pizza stone or whatever you're using to, to make the dough, uh, to make the pizza, you bunch up the edges so you've got that thicker rim, if you will, around and then the rest of it. And when I worked in a pizza joint in my in my youth and we had a device that was like a like a hand roller covered in lots of little spikes that we ran over the dough before we put anything on it that meant that we wouldn't get a ton of bubbles because what happens if you get a ton of bubbles in a five to six hundred degree oven which is what a pizza oven is usually at if not more the bubbles grow and the pizza dough grows really thin obviously because it's being stretched and then that stuff gets 
really crispy and flaky and, and actually kind of horrible. So you use this device to make sure that it doesn't get too bubbly, but you get a nice bubble around the outside in that in that crust bit. So the dough or the crust is the is the most is the base, obviously. Then you've got the tomato sauce, and then you have the cheese, which are the the core ingredients of any pizza. And then it kind of deviates from there. Mm-hmm. The again, then the Neapolitans say that buffalo mozzarella only from certain types of buffalo, only in certain types of fields. But now it's all over the place, isn't it? It's it's really not prescribed. Yeah, and I, I would I would put forward an argument that uh most good pizza pizza places pizza places use uh a bit of a blend of cheeses they will use mozzarella but then they will you know sprinkle in pecorino pecora, pecora, i can't even say it what am i trying to pecorino. say thank you uh or a little monterey jack or a little tang of cheddar like not greasy or or overly aged cheddar but like something where it's going to be just an accent on top of things um you know buffalo mozzarella if you if you use the wrong type if you use the one that's in the in the sauce and on the sauce in the water still that's going to completely destroy your ability to um get a good pizza crust on there because it's got too much water in it so you've got to strain it you've got to firm it up a little bit um or you can use the buffalo mozzarella where you just pull it and it you know that will work as well um but yes, as we've said in our like our burger episode, this is like this the crust and the tomato sauce and the cheese are the top level like tier one stuff and everything else is tier two in opinion. You cannot mess with the uh the the crust, the tomato sauce and the cheese. So when I worked in this pizza joint, we had a lot of West Coast and it was in California, we had a lot of chicken based pizzas which would nope. use a white sauce. Nope. Which was actually ranch dressing. Uh <laughs> sorry. <laughs> And you know it was fine. It was fine. Uh, it it had a very different flavor. It was much more sort of garlicky and tangy in a and cream. Basically, it was tasted like ranch dressing. It was it was fine, but it wasn't. I think that's where you get a little bit off piece. But before we get any further, I want to bring Scott into the conversation to to tell us about you know his thoughts on what we talked about. What is pure pizza? Is that even a thing? Where to find a good slice especially in new york which is his stomping grounds and which is home to arguably some of the best pizza in the world i think he'll say yes uh and 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 a few other things so let's bring scott in scott welcome to mastication nation thank you very much for for spending some time with us today i'm delighted to speak with you we 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 met uh oh my god i think it was like three years ago when you took us on one of your fabulous tours and and we got an education about not just uh, New York pizza, but but pizza in general. But I gather this is this is much more than a, a business for you. This is a a raison d'être almost. Exactly, it's definitely my whole life. And and correct me if I'm wrong, or if any of these facts are wrong. You have a Guinness World Record. You have a documentary made about you. Uh, you have a. Uh, a company now which specializes on in pizza tours in New York City, but you limit yourself. And again, correct me if this is wrong. To fifteen slices a week. That is all accurate, including the limit of pizza. Oh man! But tell me about this Guinness Book of World Record. How? What's the story there? Well, I um, am really into pizza, and I decided when I started this business that I should be interested, or I should. I should be knowledgeable about all things pizza in every sense of the food. 
So uh, one of the things that I got really interested in was pizza boxes because I read a stat that said that two-thirds of all pizzas eaten in America are in some point in a box, takeout, delivery, whatever. So I thought that if the box touches that many pizzas, I should know about the box. So I started digging into it and then I started understanding that there was different artwork on different boxes in different parts of the country and started collecting them. And then that turned into a book all about pizza box art. And by the time that book came out, I thought, you know, I've got a lot of these. Maybe this is one of those world record collections and I don't even know it. So I contacted Guinness and I said, is this a record? What is this? And they said, yeah. They said, yeah. They said, well, you have to have at least 500. And I thought, well, I've got at least 700. Wow. At the time it was 600. Now I have over 1,400. Wow. Yeah, they're all mostly unused, all unique, beautiful pizza boxes. From from the U.S. or from all over? Over 80 countries. 80? Over 80 countries. Wow. And so people send them to me because I'm in New York most of the time. I'm not traveling as much as I'd like to, but I get emails every other day. Hey, I found this amazing one in Bangkok. Can I send it to you? And I say, absolutely, yes. Wow. That's so cool. I mean, I, I think that comes back to the pervasiveness of pizza, um, which I want to touch on a little bit. But but because it's so widely available and it's so uh, globally adored, do you think in your mind that there is a definition of pizza? What is pizza? It's a great question because I think it is a moving target of a word. And I think it's meant different things between its first written appearance in the 10th century and today, 2018, uh, the word has changed. The meaning has changed. So I think in terms of what it was, I think originally when the word linked up with the food that we now know today, probably around the late 17th century, that word meant a yeast leavened dough that is stretched, then topped, then baked. Okay. It did not specify what it's topped with, didn't specify ingredients and toppings. It really just seems to have been based on written records and uh, uh, drawings and paintings from the time. It seems to be a yeast leavened dough that gets stretched, topped, and baked. That's the historical definition. But have you ever had something put in front of you and and said that this is not pizza? Yes, all the time. And in fact, okay, all right. I mean, I I just did this little mini series of a show. It's on Amazon and it's also on YouTube. It's called Really Dough, and it's me and this pizza maker in Brooklyn. Uh, I go to a pizzeria that makes a bizarre pizza, and then I bring it to him, and we debate whether or not it's actually pizza. Okay, so so what what would be a uh, a cardinal sin for 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 something to claim it's pizza when it's it's not? What are, are there obvious things where you go, well, you can't. This isn't pizza because it it has X on it or it doesn't have Y on it. Yeah, to me, it has nothing to do with what's on top, but it has to do with how it's put on top. So if the crust is baked first and then topped, to me, that's a topped bread or a flatbread. Mm-hmm. To me, a pizza is when it's baked with something already on top of it. That's one major element. Okay. I don't care what's on it. It's just more of if you bake a bread and then you put something on it, that's not a pizza. It's a piece of toast. It's you know. Sure. So this is just as much about the process as it is about the end product. 
Exactly. I think it's more about the process. But in terms of what's illegal on a pizza, to me, it's, well, once you have a... Oh, sorry about that. To me, it's once... It just means my laundry's done. (laughs) Or we're keeping that in. (laughs) I gave you a pause so you can edit, but whatever. It's your show. So um, to me, it's once there's no bread involved, it's not a pizza. Okay. So it's a cauliflower crust. I'm sh- it's delicious, wonderful, but it's not a pizza. It's something else. And and so what about something like Chicago deep dish pizza? Absolutely a pizza. I, I don't understand okay. how anybody could argue against that. It's It checks all the boxes. There's nothing about it that's not pizza, except for it's it's not familiar to some to people who are not from that part of the country or didn't grow up with it. When you think of pizza as being that flat sauce and then cheese and you pick it up, then, you know, you go to Italy and things that you see there might seem as much not a pizza as something in Chicago. Right. Yeah, because this – and I appreciate and admire your – your uh the way you look at the word as this sort of reasonably elastic, fluid definition that ebbs and flows with the times because I think from what I understand, there are purists – or, or, or sort of extremists almost, that, or fundamentalists is probably a better word, that they say it's not pizza unless it's this type of tomato or this type of cheese or, or you know, comes from this region, then everything else is just a, a, a pretender to the throne. Yeah, we, we tend to live in a time right now where people are searching for that nasty word, that authenticity, and they believe that that what that means is doing something the way it has been done before is the right way, yeah. which totally negates advances in technology and our uh, ability to combine different foods. And, you know, uh, when people look at foods that combine different cultures and they think that that's a violation, it's totally ignorant because pizza itself, any food, but pizza specifically is such a combination of cultures. Basil is not native to Italy. Tomatoes are not native to Italy. I mean, come on, it's it's totally a moving target. And that's why I think it's flexible, as you just said. You said it's a beautiful pun you gave me, elastic, this flexibility. Right. <laughs> it makes me think of the dough, high, you know, protein content leading to gluten structures and elasticity, making a crust uh, the texture that it is. I think that when you grow up with something, that's your definition, and everything else that violates that definition to you is wrong. And I think that that way of thinking is this isolationist, uh, just inhumane way of thinking of things. Because it's, quite, it's quite, quite rare because people are very protective of the things that are most familiar to them, right? I mean, I think if you, if you especially if, if your city or region or even your country strongly identifies or is strongly associated with that dish, it's, it, you know, one becomes, I think, almost in a way naturally defensive of it. So New York pizza, Chicago pizza. And if you, if you ask somebody and, you know, we're ta- painting in broad strokes here, what's the best pizza? Well, everything, you know, New York pizza is the best because everything else is just not pizza. But so it, it, it sounds like you're not a subscriber to that way of thinking that, that uh, one pizza is better than the other because it's from a region or it adheres to certain protocols or construction, you know, ratios or anything like that. Absolutely. Yeah. I do not believe in that. I think pizza is really a loose definition. And my definition I just gave you, I even disagree with it many times. Really? How how so? Well, I just think that a par-baked Sicilian pizza, which means that 
you, you let the dough rise in the pan. It's a rectangular pizza. And uh, unlike round pizzas, you don't stretch them, top them, and bake them right away. You let the dough proof or rise in the pan. Then sometimes people tend to put a little bit of tomato on it and then bake it for a few minutes. And then they let it cool off. And then they finish it with more tomato and cheese, and, and, and it's lighter and crispier that way. I think it's a great way to make something that at the end result is a pizza, but according to the process, mm, it wasn't really topped before it was baked, but I still consider it a pizza. There's not a river that cuts one country from the other, and then you can say, well, this is my country and that's your country. You know, it's, it's a gray area. It's like, to me, the definition of the word pizza is this three-dimensional sphere, and at the center of it is the origin. And then as you get from that, you're still within pizza, but maybe it thins out and starts to cross over with some other food. We don't, it doesn't help us in life to say that something is and something isn't. It helps us to just understand if something tastes good. Sure. No, that's a very beautiful way of putting it. And I think uh, I, I love pizza in almost all its incarnations. And if someone says to me, what's your favorite pizza? I tend to gravitate to, towards the pizza that I, I grew up with. But I think that there's so much more of an emotional thing, an intangible thing than there is a sort of it's better because, you know, it takes these boxes. Right. Absolutely. It's you, pizzas, you know, when you see it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, that's a great way of putting it. But I mean, when you do these wonderful tours uh, and you take people around uh, New York and introduce them, are you, are you saying well, now this is a, an, you know, uh, a pizza in this style or a pizza in that style? Or are you taking them to typical, I don't know if that's, if this is a thing, typical New York pizzas, like slice shops, like the one that we visited near, near Penn Station? Yeah. I want them to see different styles. So if we do a slice shop, it means that we will not visit another slice shop on the tour. And if we do, it will have to be a variation on that theme. I don't want to do two pizzas that are doing the same food. So it's very much about this is an example of Neapolitan pizza. This is what that term means. This is what to expect when you're in a pizzeria that calls itself Neapolitan pizzeria. But then what happens when you go to a Roman style pizzeria? What's the difference? Aren't they all Italian? No, mm. totally different. I want I want to educate people on what those differences are, which has nothing to do with what's good or what's bad. It's all informational. What what you decide is good or bad is all on you. I'm just here to explain why you tasted the things you tasted. That's yeah. That's and that's I think uh, an invaluable service. And New York's probably one of the few cities in the world where you can get that breadth of uh, of type of pizza. I would imagine. So you've got a, a rich a rich field to play in. Which is always fun because it gets controversial when a different city's pizza comes into New York. And then it turns out that New York is actually pretty accepting of that. So that's really? why I agree with you. I love that. What I love about New York is not just New York style pizza. It's really the fact that we have all these different styles. And what makes a great pizza city is not the ownership of one style. It's the availability of multiple styles. It's all about so, diversity. Yeah, and I and I admire New York for that on, on not just for pizza, but on so many other foods. Uh, but to that point, what is New York style pizza? There are two essential variations. The first one, historically, chronologically speaking, is the coal oven pizza, which is served by the whole pie. We call it a pie, uh, and it's usually with fresh mozzarella, uncooked, salted, crushed plum tomatoes. 
and some basil. It's usually a pizza margarita. And it's served at these places that used to be bakeries and now have transformed into pizzerias with these coal ovens, ovens that burn anthracite coal. And it's an important feature because when Neapolitan immigrants first landed in America, these were the ovens that they were using because coal was inexpensive. The wood that they were burning back in Naples was expensive. So they figured, okay, we'll use whatever's available here. They totally created New York style, original coal-fired New York style pizza. But then there's the other style, which I think, uh, like when we met up, we met at at New York Pizza Suprema, which is one of the just classic, it's what you think of, it's what your listeners think of when they hear the phrase New York style pizza, which is baked in a metal gas-fueled deck oven. It's a large 18 to 22 inch pizza served by the slice, low moisture mozzarella, an either uncooked or a lightly cooked and very lightly seasoned sauce. Um, and it's served on a paper plate that is smaller than the slice. So there's always a slice hanging off. If your slice is smaller than the plate, not New York style pizza. Okay. So so that brings me to my next question, which I think uh, everybody's kind of champing at the picture here, the answer to. It, it feels like there's a slice shop every 35 feet. I don't know if that's the city regulation that they there has to be one every 35 feet. But I can't imagine that they're all good. Uh, maybe they are. I don't know. But but if if one is a, a new visitor to New York or even a frequent visitor to New York, how can you separate the good from the bad? Maybe even just by looking in the window. Is there are, are there any telltale signs? Even if you go in and, and look at the wares available. Yeah, I've got a few tips for this, and of course, I have to just give it the caveat that there are always exceptions to these guidelines. You will never be able to just follow these guidelines and then have a successfully delicious pizza. But for the most part, when you're in a high traffic tourist area, there's not great pizza. Very often the case, because just there's a captive audience. People tell me all the time on tours, oh, I'm staying in Times Square. I had this pizza. It wasn't that good. And I say, well, you got to get out of Times Square. That's one thing. Heat lamps are a no-no. If there's a heat lamp over the pizza, keep on walking. It's the pizza's not fresh. It's not sitting. It's been sitting there too long. Another thing is, Small pizza shop with 45 different pizzas sitting out, you know that they're not going through them very quickly. I would stay away from that as well. My pet peeve recently has been when I see pizzas being served on, uh, being displayed kind of in by the counter on an angle, they're propped up. And to me, it's just trying a little too hard. I feel like I've never had a good pizza from a place that displayed it on an angle. Okay, that's, so that's that's invaluable advice. Thank you. And, I mean, talk, so about price. I mean, is price an indicator? Because I've seen like one and two dollar slice shops. That is that. Am I going to have a bad time? Really, I hope people are sharp enough to know that you get what you pay for, and a dollar yeah. slice could be exactly what you need at the moment that you're eating it. But that moment is usually after dark, under the influence of substances, perhaps maybe. You know. Uh, <laughs> I tend to eat, I respect pizza. I, I don't, I don't, I eat pizza sober. That's, that's the way I live. I respect it. And I feel like when you eat the dollar slice, you're making a decision and you know the risks you're taking. (laughs) Okay. Not to say that that just because somebody charges $3 means it's worth it. Some $3 slices are not good. Okay. Okay. So that price isn't always an indicator. I'll give you I'll give you a really good price freshness tip is 
when you see a pizza sitting in the little plastic in the casing, you know, in the counter case, and there's some condensation above it, that's a fresh pie. You jump on that fresh pie. So if a place is a dollar a slice, but they've got a fresh pie, I think that's better than a two fifty slice that's been sitting out for an hour. Okay. That makes total sense. And I uh, see, I never would have thought to look for that or even considered it a good sign had I seen it. So I gotta, I gotta get out to New York. Oh, so, okay. Well, here's, here. this may be impossible to answer. Do you have a place that you just sort of gravitate towards when you get that itch and need a, need a slice? Is there a place where you go, you know, it's near my house. Everybody knows me there. Uh, and it's just, it's just good. And I know it's going to be good. I know it's always going to be good, whether it's 1am or four o'clock in the afternoon. It's hard to answer only because I don't often find myself in a situation where I get the itch because I'm always scratching all the time. I mean, I'm just in, I'm in front of pizzerias all the time. I had pizza a couple days ago and I brought home an extra slice. So I've got a slice in my fridge that if I need it, I can I can get the emergency slice, but there's a place near me called Loduca. And that's, you know, just like you just described local pizzeria. I know it's dependable. I know whenever I go in there, I'll get a good slice. It's run by a family. They're great people. It's right at the subway stop. I mean, these are all more important, I think, than, um, you know, like than, than knowing every detail about their ingredients. I just feel like in New York, especially New York, you said 35 feet, which is probably right. Every block, there's a pizzeria. And I think that the best pizza in the city for any New Yorker is the one that's closest to where they live because you form a relationship and a bond with the pizza makers. And it's not like other food. Pizza is a food that's made by hand. I mean, not just by a human, but literally by hand. There's no ladle in between you and the product. There's no fork there's no, you know, it's a pair of hands. Wow. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a great way of looking at it. Um, right before we we started recording, you tweeted out something that I, I want to mention because I think it relates to the T-shirt that you're wearing um, about this, uh, the the dollar pizza party to fight hunger. Can you t- tell us about this? It sounds like a very worthwhile cause. Yeah. So I run a nonprofit organization called Slice Out Hunger. And for the past 10 years, we've been doing an annual pizza party, which just so happens to be the week that you and I are speaking right now. Um, we're, we do it every October, which is National Pizza Month. And the idea is that we, we get all these amazing pizzerias together. And I have great relationships with all of them. And they all agree to come and serve pizza on a Wednesday night for a dollar per slice. And every dollar we raise goes to local hunger relief organizations, along with sponsorship money that we've raised. So it's a huge event. We're going to have 1,725 pizzas there. And wow. it's all going to be for a buck a slice. So how can people uh, find out more about this? You can go to sliceouthunger.org. Brilliant. Oh, what a, what a great uh, cause. And uh, kudos to you for 10 years. I had no idea it had been going on that long. Yeah, it's been a while. I mean, it started real small. And it's the past five years that it's really been big. But uh, we raised $50,000 in one night, typically. So... That's extraordinary. Well, well, uh, great work. And folks, if you're in New York, uh, go and check it out. And if you're not, read up about it and make sure you're in New York next year for this uh, for this event. Uh, Scott, thank you um, so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You've 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 given us a, a bunch of uh, of great knowledge, and now I, I'm really hungry for pizza, which in rural England where I live is basically impossible to find. <laughs> 
You know what? We started doing that. We started doing that. And I think uh, it's very satisfying, even if it's not as good as a pizzeria pizza. I think that making your own pizza is sometimes better. And you just feel so good about it when you've made it. But that's, I feel like that's a whole other episode. Yes. We should, uh, when we, because we do these alphabetically, when we come back to P, we'll have you back on and we'll talk about making pizza. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. Really appreciate it. Always good to chat with you. So great conversation. Thank you very, very much, Scott, for, for joining us. Soup uh, really is one of the nicest guys in the world. And I've never seen anyone so enthusiastic about some, so anything uh, than Scott is about pizza. But if you're in New York, look him up, Scott's Pizza Tours. They are a, f- a f- really fun thing to do and you'll learn a lot and you get to try a bunch of great pizzas. But and and get it, get in touch with us as well if you if you got any reaction to that as well. There's some good stuff in there. But but talking about the varieties around the world, do you do you have a favorite type of pizza? Either toppings or styles or regional variations? I think I have. I think I have. I have my favorite style and I have my favorite toppings. To to Scott, I absolutely adore New York style pizza. Uh, you know the, the the type that you can fold in half, and you know the the oil comes dripping out onto the plate. That just for me screams the most authentic American style pizza, um, and it's just it's absolutely wonderful. But I also do love West Coast, and West Coast is definitely a style. So I would say it's a bit more like it's it's thicker it's got more of a crust on it it's got good flavor generally more toppings as well i know generally more toppings there's um, a lot of people that say i think anything more than two is is just ridiculous but I, you know i i'm with you i think i love west coast pizza and i love new york pizza as well there are i mean there are ones that i okay, there's there's styles that i don't like and then there's toppings of just regular pizza that i can't stand either i'm not a big fan this seems to be more of an east coast thing maybe a midwest thing as well do you know what pub pizza is no i don't pub pizza is what you probably find in england um as well where they've made it in like a metal like cast iron. they've made a pizza in like a cast iron skillet and so uh when it comes out it's got like a very almost um, it's not like a doughy bottom like you would have like a, the regular pizza. Not doughy in the sense it's undercooked, but it's almost very cracker-like and crisp on the bottom. And okay. I don't like it. It's just not. No, like that doesn't thing. sound good to me. Yeah, it's like you look at pub pizza and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't like ultra thin, ultra crispy pizza at all. Uh, no, I want some. I want some bite to it. Yeah, and I think that's what's so great about New York style is that it's got you know it it is generally thin, but as you know you, you say you you fold it, it it just has like and I think Scott said that it it shouldn't crack more than one inch from the base of the of the of the crust. That's the perfect thing. Hmm. Um, it relents but yields to the bite. I think is what he said in our episode, which is which is perfect. But then, yeah, West Coast pizza is a lot more toppings. My favorite pizza of all time is the King Arthur Supreme at Round Table, which there's nothing artisan about it, but it's it's just great. I think it's it's a fantastic pizza. I've had pizza in Italy. I've had pizza in Naples. It's freaking great, but it tastes uh, it tastes a, a very specific way. Yeah, and I think that the Italians like the, themselves have like moved, besides the the fanatical hardcore, 
they've moved with the times and seen its commodity. Um, when uh, my wife lived in Rome for a while and I would go visit her, um, I always always looked down on these places that I thought they were touristy that were selling pizza by the pound, like square pizza by the pound. And then you talked about it in your in your in the Attaché episode in Rome, and I can't remember the name of the style, but it's just like wonderful types of pizza that like yeah, they're on a sheet, and then you say how much of it you want, and they charge you by the pound. Yeah, it's and and that's a very Roman uh, style style pizza. And again, like it shows even if you if you go a couple of hours in one direction in the country where this dish is supposed to be from, that you get these massive massive uh, variations of this stuff. And yeah, that 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 pizza Bianca that you're referring to, which is the um, with the really pure Roman staple and has been there for for forever. Uh, it, it is really good as well. I think where pizza really falls off is just when it uses cheap ingredients. Mm-hmm. You know, or it, it makes it too complicated. Well, I think you can get away with it if you're using high ingredients. But if you're using, you know, crappy, overly processed cheese, uh, and you, you know, the dough is is subpar, is subpar, and it hasn't hasn't actually gone through a, like at least twenty four hours of, of of rising. It hasn't been 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 done to come out of a factory then it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be pretty crappy and bad pizza you know is is awful it's it's like bad nachos which we've talked about after the nachos episode but i'll put it back to you if you could have one topping on a traditional pizza what pepperoni would yep i i saw somebody on twitter saying um hot take unpopular opinion i don't like pepperoni pizza and the amount of hate that that guy got online was like he'd started world war three pepperoni is the is the Yardstick by which I measure all pizzerias. Yeah, and maybe we should do this in a future episode, um, like in an international, just like a generic episode, um, where you want to know the what is the yardstick in every in every restaurant or every culinary uh, type of food that you you go to. So for me, we talked about for burgers, it's a bacon cheeseburger. For pizza, it sounds like for the both of us, it's a pepperoni pizza. Um, you know, for for places that do broad statement southeast asian food uh if they can't get singapore noodles right i am very concerned um for curry obviously it's tikka masala but like i would love to do a whole episode like about that and like see if they hold up but i think pepperoni is just it's if you can't get that right don't do anything else it's funny because there's i've just been thinking about this i love pizza i absolutely it's one of the four things i must have when i go to california i you know and and I absolutely love it. But when I see it on a menu in a restaurant that's not a pizzeria, I will avoid it. Uh, If it's not in New York, I will avoid slice shops because I just don't think that they're they're usually very good. If I see it in a buffet, if I see it um, in like an airport, I avoid it. And I think it's because 90% of the pizza that I think is available – pretty pretty garbage i don't i i also i'm not a fan of faffy this is such a great word because it's exactly what it is pizza like i remember our other brother andrew used to always joke about a place near near where he used to live in london that would have like just ridiculous bs all over the pizza they were trying to make it fancy and he's like oh you know i sit next to a dude eating a pizza with fennel and mange too on it and i just wanted to you know take it out of his hands and go no 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 this is not okay I don't like that either. I don't like, you know, pizza that's trying to be above its station. It is a, 
uh, it is a universal, it's a very, um, uh, inclusive, accessible yeah. dish. Yeah. And I think if you go and try and add all these things and try and make it fancier than it is, then you're ruining something that is beautiful in its simplicity. I saw a, a, a tweet a few, it might have been a year ago now, and it was like, move over pineapple, millennials are putting mayonnaise and peas on their pizza. And the top response, the top response was, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> like, where are you getting that from? Before we wrap this up, I think we should talk about that. Let's let's talk about Hawaiian pizza, pineapple on pizza. This is This is one of the biggest controversies in culinary history. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it was going to come to my, 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 my next train of thought of things that people adore and, and stand by, which, uh, separates the pizza loving world. Uh, pineapple on pizza. Look, I don't like it, but pineapple and chicken is terrible. Just chicken does not belong on pizza, but pineapple, I can understand if it's done with the right ingredients and not too much. It can be a sweet pop that makes sense, but. The traditional Hawaiian and with ham, I feel like the ham isn't, you know, it needs to be, the ham needs to be crisp. Uh, and I don't know why. That's just my own personal opinion on that. Yeah. I mean, I don't give a shit, frankly, either way. Well, okay. Look, if we're going to go down the, the bastardization pizza, whatever you want to call this, what are your thoughts on barbecue pizza? Barbecued pizza as in barbecue flavored or pizza prepared on a barbecue? Pizza prepared in a barbecue is actually kind of fun and i've done that in the past no i'm talking about rather than red sauce you're using barbecue oh no that's just silly only okay look it exists in america but for some reason it if i could ask like Domino's of or 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 pizza hut of of england i would think that based on the marketing and my friends it's probably the third most popular pizza in england like i don't understand why it's so popular in Europe, and unless you're in certain regions in the U.S., you will not find barbecue pizza. Yeah, I'm. I'm always surprised by the um, pizza availability in a lot of sweet corn in the U.K. Yep, um, a lot of uh, mini hot dog crusts in Hong Kong. Okay, so just before we get on to the to, to wrap this up, the the chains Pizza Hut, Domino's, not not I'm not a huge fan anymore. Interestingly. If you're in Hong Kong, there is now a new pizza joint started by a guy from Chicago, I think, that is uh, really, really good called Paisanos. It's in – they have think what they have one in, in Wan Chai, Causeway Bay. Anyway, Hong Kong has officially jumped the shark. They've taken this thing too far. And some of the things that you can get on – every time I go to Hong Kong, at the top of one of the market streets in Wan Chai, there's this pizza hut. And they always have a poster in the window of their latest abomination. And I always take a picture of it and I send it back. Okay, so there's one called the Cheese Roni. Okay, okay. I can't even figure out what that is. All right. Uh, it is basically – this is just so bad. Its crust is – Mini mozzarella and pepperoni sticks. So imagine that. And they're mm-hmm. not like, it's not like one loop. They're like perpendicular to each other all the way around. So you can tear them off yep. and, and eat like them. Like garlic knots, yeah. Right. Uh, and then they've got another version, which is with the hot dogs, like you mentioned. And then on the pizza, there is shrimp, like whole tail shrimp, onions, pineapple. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I don't know who they think they are. 
But it sells. That's the thing about like pizza is that like it caters to the region that they're in. And at one point, like, you know, this is how religion starts. Like they're going to go off in like 150 years. Pizza in Southeast Asia is going to be like, like so different from what it is in like Africa or North America. Yet it's all based in the same stories. <laughs> you can get Thousand Island instead of red sauce. Oh, Jesus. Oh, wow. Is that, like a, is that like a Reuben pizza? It's just one of the things that you can, you can get. It's, I do want to jump back really quickly to Domino's, though. Because uh, we used to eat Domino's in Hong Kong when we were kids. Like, they had a Tuesday two-for-one special. And we used to get that all the time. And it was great. Uh, back when they still like, adhered to those rules. I feel like back in the 90s, they, they had a lot more of the, if it's not there in 30 minutes, you get it free. They don't do that stuff anymore. Um, but Domino's, if you are into business, if you are into, uh, you know, success stories, Go look at Domino's' stock price over the last 10 years. Yeah. And again, I think David Chang touched on this. Oh, really? I don't think I've seen that episode because back in back in 2008, they hit a all-time low of uh, $4.38. It's currently trading at uh, $300. And one of the things, and, and forgive me if this is in the episode, um, I have not seen it, but around the time that they started going gangbusters was not because they changed their pizza or their process. It was the invention of the tracking system. That digital tracking system so that you know when you place your order, it's that little like cartoon that moves along saying, we received your order. And then it moves into the next section and it says, like, Jim is preparing your pizza. And now it's like checking. And now it's like, you know, Cassandra is in the car and it will be delivered to you. And that thing, that user experience is now what drove their stock price to where it is. I believe it. I believe it. I think it's impressive. The pizza. It's impressive. And you know, I honestly haven't had a pizza hut or Domino's pizza in years, but I, w- I just want to go back because I found the, I, <laughs> I found it. What's on this pizza in Hong Kong. Um, I was just looking at a picture trying to figure it out. Are you ready for this? Yes. Prawn. Okay. Squid. Squid. Tuna. Oh, Jesus Christ. Peach. <laughs> cucumber cherry tomatoes black olives red onion parsley mayonnaise and barbecue sauce oh my god that is like it's like like did they hire like a like seth rogan at the height of his stoner <laughs> phase like what the hell is that yeah so i don't know i mean i'll eat pretty much anything but i you know what i'm going to hong kong in three weeks don't do it don't I'm, do it Yep, I'm going to do it. That perfectly brings us to this point. Yes, you can go out and find great pizza. You can also find terrible pizza, especially in Hong Kong. But you can make good pizza at home. It's not that hard. Follow a couple of key skills and and techniques. Get good, high-protein flour. Take your time. Need it. I do a, a Alton Brown's recipe from Everyday Cook, which is um, his the last pizza dough you'll ever need recipe. It takes 24 hours to do, but it's so low maintenance that it's not that hard. Basically, what you're doing is you're making your dough, then leaving it in the fridge to proof and to rise. And that slows the process of the of the yeast, but uh, makes a more um, uniform and, and solid dough. And then I have um, a pizza stone that I leave in the oven because they're, you know, 
heat proof. Uh, but you can actually do any untreated terracotta slab of tile. Like you can go to your local Home Depot style place and buy any untreated uh, stone and you can use that in your fridge, in your oven, sorry. Um, a lot of professional k- kitchens use uh, soapstone, which uh, is good because it's porous and that wicks away uh, moisture away from the pizza so you get that good crust on the bottom. But it's not that hard to do at home. Just be sparing with your sauce um, and you'll do it the first time and you'll be like, why have I never done this before? Uh, we like making it home. We make it home often. And I, Weber, the barbecue folk, make a great pizza stone that you can use on a on a Weber kettle. And Kenji's Lopezad has posted a, a few reviews of these. You can get these sort of metallic mm. rims that that extend the height of it of yeah. your of your Weber and actually turn it into a proper pizza oven. Yeah, I, and I looked at them; they're not, they're not that expensive. So I was actually thinking about getting one. And they apparently uh, they work really really well. Yeah, and you can't make a good pizza in a in a uh, electric oven. I mean, you can try, but it's tough. It's hard to get it hot enough. Um, exactly. And l- l- one of the things whenever we move houses is I have to make sure I have a gas range or, range or at least somewhere to have my gas grill um, so that if I need to do that, I, c- I can I can uh, sort of make sure I can get that fire going. Um, so there's actually one thing I wanted to finish with, unless you had another thing. No, that's good. Do it. Um, was a friend of mine was on his honeymoon in in Italy and he just got back and he was telling me about all the places they went to and wonderful loving it and you know uh, he was in Tuscany for a couple of days and he was telling me about how this company that was taking them around uh, some of the wineries was saying that they also you know sometimes get celebrities um and uh, they said that this woman the, the woman driver picked up this guy from the airport um didn't really know who he was apparently he was a celebrity he was a bit grumpy, but he was on a long flight and then went around and bought like $10,000 worth of, of wine and ate a lot of pizza. He was like, oh, yeah, um, he's he's not famous here. We don't know who he is, uh, but apparently he's really famous in America. His name is Peyton Manning. <laughs> and for people who don't know, Peyton Manning was a quarterback for um, the Colts and then um, more recently Broncos. before retired Broncos. And why this is interesting is because I'll need to double check my math on this, but I'm 90% sure – the uh, the article I read was was factually accurate, but when he moved to the Broncos, um, he bought up um, a lot of chain a lot of franchises of Papa John's Pizza, which their own personal politics aside, you know, is a very large pizza uh, chain in the U.S. Two things. One, any any sports star who diversifies um, usually does pretty well. I mean, Shaquille O'Neal has made way more money from from his uh, out of basketball things than he ever did making uh, playing basketball. But Peyton Manning bought these uh, these pizza places, and so the joke is that he went to Tuscany to get some some more um, ideas. But he bought in Chicago in Denver right as um, the marijuana laws changed, and his sales. St- skyrocketed and he made <laughs> so much money on the green revolution. I think I've heard that before. Yeah. And so like I, the, the, my friend was joking that like, you know, Peyton was in Tuscany coming up with the new Papa John Tuscany, uh, you know, uh, pizza that's going to be rolling out across all his joints in the next couple of years. That's amazing. Yeah. What a way to end the episode. I don't think we can top that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell us how you like your pizza. What's what's uh, acceptable to you? What your flavors are? What's the weird thing in your country that you are uh, ashamed to love? Um, and then next uh, next time we record, it's Q. So yeah, any suggestions? There. Yeah. What should we do for Q? 
And in the meantime, thank you to Scott for joining us. It's, we need to have some more guests on here. We'll get we'll get better at that. Uh, but until then, folks, be well. There you go.